And now, for the peace of resistance, we have, as our speaker tonight, land that I have had the privilege of meeting before, and has come up here from Hollywood to speak to us tonight. And I know we're all in for a treat. So without any further ado, I'd like to introduce Al M. of Hollywood. Hello, everybody. My name is Al M. And I'm an alcoholic. And thanks for that laugh, John. Did you hear that? He says that laugh. <laughs> That's wonderful. Well, the man walked into the bar room. He walked up to the bartender and his, had his arm up in there like this. He says, the bartender, give me a double. The bartender looked at his arm and he says, my goodness, man, where'd you get it? He says, I had a shot off down Guam in the last war. So the bartender says, have a couple on the house. He had a couple on the house and walked out. About an hour later, another fellow come in. He's fixed up like this. He says, bartender, give me a double. The bartender looked at his arm and he says, my goodness, man, where'd you get it? He says, in Guadalcanal in the last war. He says, have a couple on the house. So he has a couple on the house and walks out. Everything's fine. About two hours later, another guy walks in. He's got them both up like this. Bartender says, what can I do for you? He says, give me a double. He says, my goodness, man, how did the, where did you get it? He says, Hart, Schaffner, and Marks. Ain't it a hell of a fit? <laughs> well, that just came out down below, and I thought maybe you hadn't heard it yet, you see. <laughs> well, I know we have a lot of people here tonight who are from the outside and not alcoholics. So they're here to find out possibly for a brother or a sister or a mother or a father or an uncle, you know. <laughs> and how many of you came to an AA meeting on account of someone else, you know? But uh, I think it's very good that we get down to basic Alcoholics Anonymous and alcoholism and talk about a few things that possibly they don't know that we know. Or we think we know anyway, you know. <laughs> Did you ever talk to an AA who's been around six months? He knows everything. And he's around six years and he doesn't know anything. He admits it. But that's the way we all are. It's wonderful. We found something. Anyway, I would like to say a few words about things that we have learned in Alcoholics Anonymous. We don't all agree, of course. <laughs> that makes that makes this so wonderful we can argue. You don't argue and argue. In fact, I'll never forget. When I first came into AA, there were very few of us. And someone would just stand up and he'd say, now God will do this for you. And somebody would jump up and say, now we're back in church again. And the big argument would start, you see. <laughs> somebody says, let's take a collection. And somebody say, now what is this, a, a, a racket for money? And that's the way it used to be. Now we, God and money, we talk right out and just bring it right out in the open, you know, and don't try to hide it. But anyway, we find out that alcoholism is definitely a disease. It's as much of a disease as cancer, heart trouble, or anything else that you can name that is a killer. The statistics say, and there are different statistics, that uh, it is the second worst killer. Another statistic comes out and says it's the third worst killer. Another statistic says it's the fourth worst killer. But we know it's a killer. And it causes many, many other diseases. It is the basic reason we have many other diseases. It breaks us down. That is, especially for an alcoholic. We find that uh, the disease of alcoholism is made up of two parts, an allergy of the body coupled with an obsession of the mind. And I uh, am amazed how many of us just slur over the fact that we have a physical allergy. Some explain it that uh, some people have an allergy, for instance, uh, for uh, uh, cucumbers. They can't eat cucumbers. They get sick. Other people can't eat strawberries. They break out all over. And they never never get rid of these allergies. But uh, these are very minor, you know. <laughs> they should have the allergy of alcoholism. That's the allergy. This is the dandy. But it is so... It is so stated, and this is the theory that I believe in, and I think it's my privilege, and I've heard it from other, uh, from a couple of eminent doctors, that 4% of the people in the world are or will become alcoholic before they die if they drink alcohol to any degree at all. They also follow this up with the fact that it isn't the amount of booze that we drink that causes the disease. It's how the stuff affects us. How are we set up physically for this alcohol? 
Now, many of us believed, and I did when I first came into AA, that I would have had to drink for 15 or 20 years to be a qualified alcoholic. And then the kids started to coming in, kids as young as 30 years old. You know, ah, we'd look at them and say, you couldn't have drunk enough to become an alcoholic. Go back and qualify yourself, you know. <laughs> and then I brought a guy in that was 29 years old. And when he got through telling his story, why, they says, well, I guess you, you're an exception to the rule. We'll take you in. But it has come to pass that it isn't the amount of booze that you drink that causes the disease. It's how the stuff affects you. That's the important, that's the important thing. Oh, I suppose that a person can become allergic to alcohol by uh, drinking gallons of alcohol uh, over a period. But the, the good doctors say that that isn't the important thing. We're set up very similar to diabetes. Diabetics, the 4% of the people in the world are or will become diabetics before they die. Not because of the excess use of sugar, but physically they're set up that they can't catalyze or burn up their sugar like so-called normal people. And the same thing exactly is true of an alcoholic. Now, it is also true that there are some people who are born alcoholics, but these are the exceptions to the rule. I suppose you have heard at AA meeting, some guy gets up and says, from the time I took a couple drinks, I went on a bender, I was drunk for three days, I had blackouts, I didn't remember what I did, and so forth. Well, this is a man who is a born, or a woman who is a born alcoholic. But most of us are not affected that way. And also, you can become an alcoholic at any age. I have an old friend down in Los Angeles who came into AA at the age of 69. He said he wasn't an alcoholic till he was 65. The old devil is damn near 90 now. <laughs> and he's still going. Still sober. So you see, these things happen, and it also happens on the physical side of the disease. It says in our book, and you who are not members of AA, we have a book called Alcoholics Anonymous. And it says in the book, once we have crossed the line from being a normal drinker into the realm of being an alcoholic, there is never any turning back. We are dead, we are through, we were finished, we will never be able to drink without having trouble again. And I believe definitely in my own mind, and many other along with me, is the fact that we have crossed that line physically. And to me, this is where the disease starts. Now, I know that you are like me, without a doubt, and you went along and you drank and you would cross this line, you didn't know it's just very slight, you don't realize it, but pretty soon, uh, you didn't remember just exactly how you drove home last night. So you go over to the window, you look down to see if your car is out in front. Ah, ha, ha, ha. Then the next thing, you can't remember much of where you were, so you wonder, who did I run over? So you get dressed real fast and shake it like a leaf and go down without tying your shoes because you can't. And you look at the bumper on your car to see if there's any blood on it, you know. <laughs> it's very funny now, but it was very funny. <laughs> anyway, this thing goes on and on, and it gets worse and worse, and we become very highly sensitive. We become very fearful. Uh, little things happen to us. We have that wonderful ability to magnify nothing into something. We become emotionally unstable, and I mean it, it gets to the point where the disease practically is emotional instability, to the point that it's actually physical pain. And I know you have gone through the same thing that I have. And then, you know, you say, I feel so good today, I'm at the top of the world, everything is going fine, I made a few bucks, everybody is happy, the world is mine, and maybe a close friend, or maybe if you have a wife, but then, you know, they'll say, look out, you're heading for a drunk. What do you mean I'm heading for a drunk? Why, the world is my oyster, everything is fine. And then somebody says something that you don't like very well. And then you go to bed at night and you say, what's that guy? Well, what is this business? Why did, you know? And you start building it and you start magnifying and magnifying. All alcoholics are the same in this respect. And to the point until you get yourself into a great big emotional tizzy where it's actually physical pain and you fight this for a few days knowing full well if you ever take another drink, you're going on a bender and you know it. And finally you go over to the bar and you say, what's the use? I'm suffering. I can't stand it. I can't sleep. I'm all upset. So you have a drink and you're on your way again. Knowing full well when you take that first drink that you're going to walk through hell again before you're on earth. And you don't know whether you're going to get back in that. No, this disease is a physical allergy coupled with an obsession of the mind to the point that you can't do anything about it. And there are obsessions and there are obsessions and there are obsessions. And most obsessions that we have are harmless obsessions. And then there are the harmful obsessions. And I think I'll go into this because we've got a lot of time. I'll be here till 11.30 anyway. And, they, and Buzz says he'd hold up the dance till I got through. But I just didn't come up here to just to talk an hour all this way. I figured a couple, two, three hours would be all right. You see, I may never be invited again in a lot of And we're here to sell AA anyway, aren't we? You know? Did you hear the story about overselling? Well, I happen to be a salesman now. 
I used to be a musician, an alleged. <laughs> I fooled him for 40 years anyway. But uh, you hear the story about selling and overselling. This gal, this Irish gal, was a beautiful gal. Uh, she was a Roman Catholic, and she fell in love with a, a Jewish boy, Amy. In fact, they'd been raised together, and they were wonderful friends. And all at once, when they became of age, they fell in love with another, one another, and this gal uh, started going with Amy. And her mother says, look, Amy is a wonderful boy, and I love him, and I think he's great, but you cannot marry Amy. He has to become a Catholic. She says, don't worry, mother, I'll sell him. I'll sell him. Well, over the, over the weeks and the months, this went on, and she kept saying, I'll sell him. She's going out with Amy. Finally, they become engaged, and she got Amy to take instructions from the priest. And the mother would say, uh-uh, you remember that? Don't worry, I'm selling Amy. He's taking instructions now. I'm selling Amy. And they became engaged. And then one night she comes home and she gets all fixed up, real beautiful, with the finest clothes and fixed herself all up good. And she went to, uh, her mother says, what's going on tonight? You're getting all fussed up and you're so happy. She says, we're going to set our wedding date. She said, well, you remember what I told you? Don't worry, I'm selling Amy. I'm selling Amy. So she went out and she came back about an hour later and she was crying like her heart would break. And the mother says, what's the matter? She says, I oversold Amy. Well, how could you oversold Amy? She says, Amy not only decided to become a Catholic, he's going to be a priest. <laughs> and we do that in AA once in a while, you know. Tell them about everything that's going to happen, and then it doesn't. They just get sober, you know. <laughs> Say, my wife didn't come back to me. I didn't get my job back, you know. Which is the way it's supposed to be. But there are obsessions, and there are obsessions. There's the harmless obsession and the harmful obsession. And all of us have little harmless obsessions. And I got to thinking about this, and I realized that there are certain things that I do every day, and I wouldn't change them for the world. They're little obsessions. And they don't hurt anybody, and, and I like them. I found out, because I'm right-handed, when I go to bed at night, I always take my left shoe off first. When I get up in the morning, I put my left shoe on first. And the same thing with my socks. And I says, how long have I been doing this? A million years. And I wouldn't change this routine for the world. The roof might fall in on me or something might happen, you see. So here's a little harmless obsession. I have a friend, when he walks down the street, he touches every telephone post as he goes by up there, a telephone post. He misses one back here block, he runs back and touches it. Now, that doesn't hurt anybody, you see. <laughs> He's just a little ding-a-ling, but that's all right. It's all right. And there, uh, then I have a friend uh, that I used to work with in, uh, in the middle 20s when we were jazz band johns. In fact, we worked at the Lowe's Warfield over here in 1926, if you want to know, in San Francisco. Anyway, we'd go to bed at night, whether we were drunk or sober, he'd touch everything on top of the dresser once. And I finally says, baby, what do you do that for? He says, it ain't hurt you and it's doing me a lot of good. Let's never bring this up again. <laughs> so you see, everybody's a little dingling. They've never found a normal person yet. Everybody. And then there's the harmful obsessions like uh, the obsessions of uh, kleptomaniacs. People who steal. Have a lot of dough. Doesn't make a bit of difference. They can't help themselves but steal. Uh, in a little town that I lived in, uh, the wife of, of the most prominent man in town was a kleptomaniac. He had her going to psychiatrists and spent a lot of money on her. She'd go downtown with $500 in her purse, and she'd steal little handkerchiefs and uh, lipsticks and one thing and another. He finally gave up, and he told the storekeepers, keep track of it, and I'll pay for it if I can't return. Everybody in town knew that she was a kleptomaniac in this little town. Everybody loved her. She did a lot of good with the Red Cross and all these sort of things, but she was just a little dingy on this kleptomaniac business, and she'd steal a harmful obsession. And then we have the pyromaniacs, the people who set fires. In spite of themselves, they can't help it. Now, I come from the little university on the hill called the University of Idaho. I send a buck or two up there every year to buy a football player, you know. We win one or two games every three or four years. You know how it is. And uh, <laughs> it is bad lately, I'll admit that. Anyway, they send me to school, uh, the Argonaut. It comes down about twice a year. And uh, one year here, about three years ago, there's an article in there about a man, someone who is setting fires on the campus. And they says there must be a, or a pyromaniac running loose here somewhere. And uh, they put out the fires, no harm done. But one Saturday night, someone set fire to the men's dormitory, one of the men's dormitories, and three of the students were burned to death. Now they get serious. They brought in the FBI. They checked every student's record that came to school. They found one man who had been in the Air Corps who was a straight-A student in engineering there. He was coming to school on his GI Bill of Rights, 
And here he was at school and had been setting fires on this air base where he was. They gave him psychiatric treatment for one year and released him with an honorable discharge. He went over and tapped him on the shoulder, and he immediately admitted that he had done it. He says, my God, do something for me. I can't help myself. I just can't help myself from doing it. So they put him in prison for life. But this is a harmful obsession, something that I can't do anything about. Then there's the sex deviant, and the next thing comes along is the alcoholic. A harmful obsession beyond our control. And the non-alcoholic cannot understand. They can't understand that we cannot or could not help ourselves from reaching for that drink. We had no way to help ourselves to keep from reaching for that drink. Willpower doesn't end into it. We now, since we've been in AA, realize that we were drunk mentally before we ever reached for that first drink, and then we became drunk physically. I know myself, I have been sober physically for a good many years, but mentally I get a little bit squirreled up. But we find out here's where Alcoholics Anonymous comes in. Of course, we start getting honest with ourselves for a change in our lives, and we're able to do something about it. If nothing else, we can call up another AA and talk to them, and things sort of disappear, even as up to this day. Even as up to this day. When things get a little bit sticky for me, and I get blue about something that maybe I don't know what it's about, and I sit down and I start getting honest with myself again, and we do deviate off in all directions, we'll be alcoholic until we die. It's very strange how God, in his wondrous ways, comes along and says, well, you know what you did to that certain person three days ago that's been bothering you? All you have to do is start examining your conscience a little bit. You call up this party, apologize, and everything is over. It's just like that. It goes back to that old basic thing in Alcoholics Anonymous, self-honesty which is the basis of the whole thing, we know. Now, I don't like to talk too much about my history, of which is very corny. This is like all the rest of you drunks, some worse and some better. <laughs> now we're getting people into AA that never were in a sanitarium, never in jail. They still have their families, they still have their bank accounts, they still have their jobs, and they still have a certain amount of respect. Thank God for AA. You see what this education of Alcoholics Anonymous has done? for the people. They're coming into now now before they're absolutely wrecked and ruined, and more and more all the time. But when I came in, which was back in 41, uh, AA hadn't been along, you see, so we, <laughs> we went through the ringer, all of us, real good. In fact, uh, I think there was one guy younger than me in, uh, in AA in Los Angeles when I came in, and you'll hear him tomorrow. Uh, I had a friend of mine. He was also a musician who took a cure. This is the aversion treatment, if I wish, I think there should be a law against, because they die. They, they, it's, it's terrible. Uh, they do to a, a dog what, they, what we do to ourselves in these aversion treatments, these cures. Why, they'd put a man in jail, you know, for cruelty to animals. But we're <laughs> cruelly a man to man. Anyway, I called him up. I was on this drunk, and I couldn't get off this drunk. I couldn't get drunker, and I couldn't get sober, and I tried to drink myself sober, and everything is upside down. And so I call up this friend of mine, and I says, you took a cure, and you're sober. He says, sober seven years, but for goodness sake, don't take the cure. It's no good. He says, I'm staying sober on willpower, and I might get drunk any day. And quack, 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 quack. So I says, just tell me who it was. So he told me, and I called him, and within a very short time, the man with a white jacket was there and took me in the car out to this place. Cure joint. Alcohol, it was called. They uh, checked me all over, and the guy says, this heart's fine. And I says, what do you mean my heart's fine? And he says, well, he says, a little rough, you know. And I says, well, if it's going to be rough, let's just forget this whole thing. I'll sober up and go home. Oh, no, that's all right. You'll, you'll make it all right. So they gave me one of those uh, tight gowns that just comes down to here, and they put me to bed, and the man comes in with a tray of all the different kinds of boozes. And he says, take your pick. And I took my pick, and they let me drink all I wanted, and I got loaded to the gills. And I says, now, this is fine. And then they hit me in the chest with that big needle, which I find out later had that chemical in it called apple morphine which makes you sick whether you've been drinking or not. And I puked until my eyeballs hung out, believe me. And then they gave me these high, high animas, and I mean high animas, repeatedly. And then they gave me some pills that make you perspire. I say sweat, and I just soak right through the mattress. And when I'm just about <clears throat> getting my breath and getting back and my head on the pillow again, boom! The booze, the shots, the, the high animas, the pills, and we go through the same routine. Three days and three nights, every four hours, I put myself through this ring. When I got out of there, I was as pure as the day I was born. <laughs> I was supposed to be cured. Well, any damn fool would know that's an old billiard drinker like me. 
that it wasn't the booze that made me sick, it was those doggone shots in the chest. I said, this is all right for the kids, but an old guy like me that knows all about this is crazy, spending $150 foolishly. Well, of course, within a short time, I was back on the giga war. But it was funny, I got out of there and I had the jitters worse than I'd ever had them in my life. And I was walking up Hollywood Boulevard and I met another musician friend of mine. And I says, oh, he says, what's the matter? I says, I just took a cure. He says, don't take those things, don't take those things. I says, never again, never again. Then a friend of mine who uh, was a violinist with Wayne King. And I worked with him. <laughs> I hate to admit it, but I did for three months one time. I told Wayne, I can't work for you. You're going to drive me to drink. So I quit. This is the way back. But this guy was working for Wayne King, and he couldn't stand him either. But he stood him. He stayed drunk all the time. And he was that, he was that great violinist that really made Wayne a millionaire. His name was Greg. I was working at a theater, and I walked over to the Aragon Ballroom in Chicago to see the boys in the band, who I knew. And Wayne says, where can I get a fiddler? I just put one in the nut house. And he used to ride his first fiddler so much, he drove nuts. And he said, this was the second one. So I says, well, uh, he says, I'm going on the air at 11 o'clock, and I'll pay 50 bucks for somebody to come and work the 45-minute air show with me. And I said, oh, we got a fiddler over there. He's the greatest thing in the world. He needs to do. He's got four kids. So I went over, and I said to Greg, go over and see Wayne as soon as, as, soon as we're through with the show. He needs a fiddler real bad, and he'll pay you 50 bucks. Greg says, lead me to it. So Greg was a real artist, and he went over there, and he sat in with Wayne and played for him, and Wayne lost his mind and gave him double salary to come and work for him. So he went to work for Rain, and I, I warned him. I said, he'll drive you to drink. So he did. And the guy drank so much, he went nuts. <laughs> he went absolutely nuts. And he had an insurance policy whereby he would get $100 a week as long as he was totally disabled. And when he got out of this nut house where he spent a year, he's totally disabled. So he moved to Beverly Hills with his kids and his wife and a wonderful family. And he's getting this $100 a week. But he has to prove to the insurance company that he's nuts yet, you see, totally disabled. So he has to report to a psychiatrist, a head shrinker, every so often. And he could put on a good show, so he went to his head shrinker. I'm leading up to something. I mean, this is interesting anyway to me. I suppose this to you. So he had to prove that he was still nuts, and he'd report to this head shrinker. So one night I'm out to see Wayne, and uh, I'm kind of on the loose. Uh, my first wife, the intolerant one, had divorced me. <laughs> so I got loaded, and I was pretty loaded when I got there, and I got a little awkward, and I fell over and broke his piano stool and some stand. Lab. You know how you are. And didn't mean to do and I went out about two weeks later and told, told Greg, I says, I'll pay for him. He says, don't worry about that. He says, you know, you're, you're a terrible drunk. I said, no kidding. And he says, yeah. I says, yeah, but I'm all through drinking now. He says, why? I says, I swore off. I took the veil. I'm never going to drink again. I was always quitting. I quit eight million times. And I was a periodical drunk. I was one of the kind of drunks that never ate, never worked, never did nothing but drink when I drank. And then when I got over it, then I did nothing but work to try to make up for the stuff that, you know how it is. So, uh, I said, well, I'm never going to drink again. I'm all through drinking. You know, I, I'm sober, I feel good, and everything's fine. I'm getting a lot of work, everything's fine. It's just like that story of the two kids, you know. The one of them says, we pray morning, noon, and night in our house. And the other kid says, we just pray at night in my house. And he says, well, why do you just pray at night? He says, because we're not scared in the daytime. <laughs> and uh, that's the way with us alcoholics. When we were sober, we're never going to drink again anyway, you know. So that was me. So... Uh, he said, I think you should see the psychiatrist. His name is so-and-so, which is a very, very tough name to pronounce. And he was a good psychiatrist because he spoke broken English. You couldn't hardly understand him. And uh, he was all right. So I finally says, okay, I'll go down and see him. I took three treatments, and nothing happened. Like all alcoholics, I wasn't going to drink again anyway. This was foolish. I was just trying to make it up to Greg, you know. And uh, I lied to him. I, I wasn't truthful or honest with him at all. Of course, after I got into AA, I found out what the guy was driving at, and I found this out in the fourth step, which is nothing more than self-psychiatry, let's face it. So, uh, nothing happened. Three treatments, and I said, this is foolishness, I'm spending money for nothing, and nothing happened. It reminds me of the story that was brought up from Texas some time ago about the young man who came from a nice family. They always come from such a nice family, you know, these drunks. <laughs> All nice families. Sure we did and the best people in the world. So uh, he went to this psychiatrist through the urging of his family. He kept right on drinking, and finally the psychiatrist became as upset as a drunk. And he says, now, he says, when you come for your treatment today, he says, we're going to change our whole method. He says, we're not going to use the old method. And now he says, John, all I want you to do is be as honest as possible with me. John says, all right. Now he says, what would happen to you if I cut off your left ear? 
And the patient said, my hearing would be impaired about 50%. He says, that's right. Now we're getting somewhere. He says, now what would happen to you if I cut off your right ear? And John says, well, I wouldn't be able to see. He says, what? Why wouldn't you be able to see? He says, because my hat would fall down over my eyes. <laughs> I think that's funnier to help. <laughs> I like those silly ones, you know. That's <laughs> no point, you know. <laughs> I, we got a lot of time. I ought to tell you that. I think it's a crazy thing. <laughs> this, guy, this guy was a little piano player. He's about so high. And I can just see him now. I like these musician jokes anyway. He's about so high. And he was a terrible drunk. And he was a fine piano player, but he couldn't get a job. And he finally got a job out on the edge of town in a piano bar. And he had no dough, no car. So he got himself a room, a little room close by. And he found that if he could walk through a cemetery and take a shortcut, he could get to his room in about ten minutes from this bar. So he works at this bar. <laughs> he works at this bar for a long time, and every night he's loaded to the gills. He follows this path through the cemetery, and he gets home safe. Everything's fine. One night he's a little, little drunker than usual, and he starts through the cemetery. And lo and behold, he loses his way off this path, and he's wandering around the cemetery, and he fell in a hole that was dug for a funeral the next day. Here he is, seven foot down, with his tuxedo on, and the whole thing. He can't reach the top of the hole. He's screaming like a Comanche all night, stomping around on the bottom of this hole. And uh, nothing happens. They're screaming and screaming and nothing happens. Finally, about daylight, an old wino comes wandering through the cemetery, and he hears a screaming over here. And he went over there, and he looked down, and here's a little piano player laying on his back, spread-eagled out with his tuxedo and collar and everything on down there. And he looks down, and he says, what's the matter down there? The little piano player says, get me out of here. I'm freezing to death. Get me out of here. I'm freezing to death. And the old wino says, well, no wonder you're freezing to death. You kicked all your dirt off. <laughs> I guess we'd better start telling jokes to hell with the rest of the nation. <laughs> I like those little piano player jokes. Huh? So then I went to uh, my family. My eldest daughter had asthma. This is still when I was married to the intolerant wife. And we moved up to, uh, to Hunga. It's about 2,000 feet altitude. And the asthma up there, she was greatly relieved. In fact, she still lives there. And uh, <laughs> it was very lonesome in this little town. It was very rough for a drunk because, you know, there's another reason to get drunk. You get so lonesome and you're away from all the rest of the musicians and the bars. You're not hanging around the bars with the boys to find out what's cooking at the studios. So uh, they told me that there was a wonderful Catholic priest down there I ought to get acquainted with. So I went down and got acquainted with this guy. I had been raised a Catholic, but I hadn't been around for a thousand years. And like all drunks, you know, you just, you know, what the... So just so you don't believe in anything. So I got acquainted with him. His name was Father Dennis Falvey. And from the name, you know that he was from the Al-Sad, and he still spoke very Irish. And we became very, very dear friends. So Father Falvey and I, I helped him get a, a choir together and got an organist for him, and, uh, and we got a choir going, and everything was uh, real nice. I'd disappear for a couple of weeks once in a while, and I'd come down to his house usually, and I'd say, Father, loan me a fin, I'm dying, I'd be shaking like a leaf, and he'd say, Here you are, my boy, don't spend it all in one place. Never say, why don't you pray, why don't you do this, why don't you go... He never, never gave me any bad time at all. He wasn't like most of the sky pilots, you know. He knew the story. He knew what was going on. And he wasn't a drunk himself either. He'd maybe take a nip of wine, but that was all. So, uh, we had been... Uh, I had been sober about three months, and Christmas is coming along, and everything is going along very good, and... Uh, uh, I used to stay sober sometimes as long as three months. When I got sobered up, I could make money like crazy. Everything was fine. Bought a new car... The kids wanted bicycles and wristwatches, uh, two daughters uh, for Christmas, and we got those hidden away. And uh, Father's going to have high mass at 8 o'clock on, on Christmas morning, and I'm going to conduct the choir. And about two days before Christmas, I got a call from one of the studios where I worked all the time, and they says, we're having a big Christmas party. And all you guys that play down here for our pictures, we'd like to have you come down and give us some music. 
some dance music. And I says, well, what's it all about? Well, it's a Christmas party put on by the studios. We're going to be in stage so-and-so, and, -so, and uh, all the food you want to eat for free and all the booze you want to drink for free. And I says, what kind of booze? They says, white horse scotch on down. No champagne. I said, well, that's too bad I'm on the wagon anyway. They said, will you come down? And I said, sure, I'll come down. When will it start? Three o'clock to six. I said, okay. So I told the wife about this, and uh, she says, white horse scotch, huh? Yeah, and I, so I start out the door with a trombone under my arm. Now I have to, oh, we're going to open up presents at seven o'clock Christmas Eve. You know, we do, the, we do the damnedest things at the most awkward times. So as I'm going out the door, the wife said, don't drink over three scotch and sodas. I says, who said I was going to drink one scotch and soda? She says, don't drink over three. I know you can. I says, who said I was going to drink any? You know damn well that I can't drink one. And the big argument starts, and I stomp out of the house there in a big tizzy. She just wants me to get drunk, that's all. She wants me to ruin everything. So I drive down the hill, and I'm saying, well, she knows me well enough. We've been married for so many years. She knows I can handle three. And I say, well, this is talking to myself. I'm nuts. I won't drink any. Anyway, I did my little bit on the stand, and I look over here. Here's all the squares over there eating food. You know, the fiddlers and people like that, the squares. And over here, over here is all my pals, all the brass men and the drummers and all those guys. And an old friend, Joe, I hadn't seen for a long time, over at the bar. I walked over and I says, Joe, how are you? He says, step up here and wet your beak, Al. He says, it's all for free. Your own mix, the ice cubes, the whole business. I says, I'm sorry, I'm on the wagon. He says, it's a hell of a time to go on the wagon. I said, I know it is, but I'm on the wagon. So then somebody else come up I hadn't seen for. Finally, I says, I don't care if I do. Now, when I got out of jail Christmas night about 9.30, <laughs> my car was all wrecked. I was in an awful mess, and my, my lawyer, I says, why didn't you get here sooner? Well, will you, Bunny? He says, I was drunk myself, and I had to sober up to come down to get you out of there to put me in with you. So anyway, I went down to see the father the next day. I mean, uh, words don't hurt you, sticks and stones will break my bones, and the old lady was, you know, the old business, you know. When I was ready to kill myself, somebody handed me a gun and shot myself when I walked out of that jail door. I mean, I was so disgusted. This was, I had let down everybody, and, and I felt so terrible about it. I didn't know that this was insanity. I didn't know that I was insane when I drank. It was long before AA. So I went to the old father, and the old father says, where were you, in jail? And I said, yeah, but I want to take a pledge. And he says, oh, you can take a pledge if you want to, but it won't do you any good. And I says, what do you mean it won't do me any good? He says, well, he says, I've known a couple guys like you, he says, that, uh, that got sober, but he said, uh, most of them just die drunks. And I says, you know, a couple of guys like me that got sober, I says, uh, how? He says, I don't know. But something happened to them where they had a complete change of personalities, a complete change in attitudes. And I says, well, what was it that happened? He says, I don't know. I says, where are they? He says, I don't know where they are. It's been happened through the years. He says, sure, the pledge will do the Saturday nights, drunks a lot of good, but guys like you, nothing. And I says, what's going to happen to me? He says, oh, you'll die a drunk. You'll just die a drunk. Unless something comes up that changes your whole thinking process. He says, let me tell you something, Al. It's not a sin to drink, but it's a sin to be a glutton. And that's as far as I can take you, and that's as far as any honest man of the cloth can take you. It's not a sin to drink, but it's a sin to be a glutton. So I went on my way, and of course the, the intolerant one divorced me, and uh, which was the best thing that ever happened. Maybe it hadn't been for her, I wouldn't have been a drunk. You know, <laughs> the screwy ideas we get. Anyway, I ended up back in Los Angeles and uh, deteriorated down, kept things get worse and worse and worse. And one orchestra leader told me at one of the big studios, he says, you know, Marino, the most, oh, this is anonymous, I forgot. He says, <laughs> he says, you know, the most uh, dependable thing about you is your independability. He says, I write music for you, I write beautiful trombone solos for you, and he says, if I catch you, just write your plan, just like an angel, and the next time you come, you sound like a grade school kid. He says, why don't you get wise to yourself? This guy was a very dear friend of mine. I played with him when he was a lousy third trumpet player, you know, but he was one of the smart guys that didn't drink, and he got himself up where he was the head of the music department of this particular studio, making $1,500 a week. It was, uh, it was, uh, set me down. What can you do? I mean, I'd get myself in these emotional tizzies. There was nothing I could do about it. I finally ended up in the two-dollar-a-week room. I never hit skid row. I never hocked my horns. I never got down there. I know a lot of musicians that did. But also, I find out that there are no more drunken musicians. There are drunken anybody else. It doesn't make any difference. And most of the musicians nowadays, they have a home and they have a family and they settle down, except the, uh, you know, the guys way out there. You know, ha, <laughs> ha, those kids that are way out in Cloud 99. But uh, this was... Uh, this is the old idea everybody had, that because you're a musician, you had to be drunk, but that's a fallacy, a big fallacy. So anyway, things got from bad to worse, and, and uh, 
I see the sheriff. You see, I can sit next to a sheriff now. It doesn't bother me at all. Uh, in fact, I could sit next to a sheriff then when I was sober, and it didn't bother me a great deal. But uh, I had been pinched a couple for drunk driving. And you know, both times I was pinched for drunk driving, I was parked and passed out. And the motor was running. Yeah, parked against the curb and passed out. Now, when I lived in Chicago, they had the rule there. They would publish little articles in the paper. If you were drunk and you know you can't drive, pull over to the curb, get a cab, or wait for a squad car, they'll take you home. And they used to do it. I was taken home two or three times when I knew I couldn't handle it. But here, I wanted to get home because if I was caught in the street or anything, I knew I was going to get in the pokey. And I got in the pokey. <laughs> and both times. So the second time, I had been at the studio, and I stopped to see a friend, and it was I got drunk, and I parked, and when I uh, backed in, why well, I bumped somebody's car a little bit behind me, the bumper, it didn't hurt it. And I just closed the windows, and I forgot to turn the motor off and passed out. And they put me in the pokey for 30 days. And I was a guest of uh, Biscalous, was our sheriff at that time down there, Biscalous. And... It wasn't too bad. I got a chance to get sober, and I was in there, and I said, if I ever take a drink again, I'm going to kill myself. And I know how I can do it. Just keep right on drinking. I had a lot of charge accounts at all the bars around Hollywood, and I could just drink myself to death if I wanted to. I can get all the money I wanted for booze, but I couldn't for food, you know? <laughs> and that's a good way to have it if you're drunk. So uh, this particular time I started on this, uh, something come up. And I fought it for about a week, and I finally ended up taking a drink. And I says, this is the end. I was living upstairs above a grocery store, and I walked up the long stairs. Pretty soon, I guess a week, I had a call up on my hands and knees, and I was passed out every day by noon. Well, things were real rough, very bad. While I was on this whiz, the wizard was the last drunk. You know, the last one was always the worst. It was lasted about eight weeks. I got a call from an old drinking buddy of mine across town who we used to help each other get over our hangovers. This guy was quite a guy. And uh, we had a little AA club all our own, one drunk helping the other. I needed some medicine. When I was dying in the morning, I'd call Jack, and Jack would come across the street with a jug, and I did the same thing for him. Big bore was steel, but we would help one another, and we had an AA club all our own. Jack was a very low-tide drinker, though. He was a bed drinker. He stayed in bed all the time when he drank, which I looked down on a great deal, and I told him, I says, man, you're a psychopathic drinker. You stay in bed. And he says, well, I might be psychopathic, but I don't get pinched as often as you do. <laughs> so while I was on this big whizzer, I get a call from Jack. And Jack says, have you read the Saturday Evening Post? And I said, no, this is March 1st of 1941. I said, no, I'm on a big drunk, and I'm never going to get sober. Well, he says, get a hold of this magazine. There's a group of people in New York called Alcoholics Anonymous. I says, yeah, what about it? He says, well, they got a club just like you and I used to have. I said, well, what's that? He says, they help each other over hangovers. I said, no. He said, yeah. He says, there's a hundred of them. I said, no. He said, yeah. He said, there's a picture of a guy lying in bed and another guy come along and most likely he's bought him some medicine. And when this guy is well, if lying in bed, why, he says, and this other guy needs some help, he goes and brings him some medicine. And he says, there's a hundred of them like a daisy chain. Go around, give each other medicine. <laughs> And I says, is there any more to it? And he says, well, I don't know. I can't read the small print. I'm drunk myself. <laughs> well, I says, what are we going to do about it? And he says, well, when we get sober, we'll get a handful of freight and go back and find out what this is all about. Because it sounds like the end for me. It's the greatest. It's the greatest. I said, okay. Went right on drinking. And finally, after about three or four weeks, I'm still on this wizard. He calls me again. He says, I found this thing called Alcoholics Anonymous. I said, no. He said, yeah. I says, what about it? He says, they don't drink. I says, they don't drink. He said, no, they don't drink. He says, I must have missed it in that article. I says, you did. <laughs> I says, how did you find it? He says, well, I was in the, in the local liquor store down here cuffing for a jug of wine, and the, one of the local drunks was paying part of his bill. And I got him by the arm. I said, what do you mean paying your bill here with us guys around here? No. They won't give us any uh, <laughs> charges. And the guy says, well, I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm making amends by paying part of my bill. And I'm spreading it a little thin around the neighborhood, but it's working very good. And I'm staying sober. I'm changed my whole life. So Jack says, I went to a meeting with him, and he says, I've been sober a week. I says, you've been sober a week? You're a psychopathic drinker like you? And he says, yeah. I says, I'm a cinch for a lifetime. Send him over. I'll talk to him. So he says, oh, no, here's his name and his phone number. You have to call him. So I called him, and I mean, after two or three weeks, we finally got together. And I didn't like him at all. It was on a Wednesday night. 
And he talked and he quacked and he talked and he told me what a terrible drunk he was and I didn't want to listen to that. I just wanted to know how you get sober and stay sober without getting the whoops and the jingles and the pukes and the dimes. And he says, that's all right. He says, I, uh, you come to, I'll, I'll come over and pick you up Friday night. Now, in the meantime, this is about 41. From about 38 on up, I had met a girl who was the last friend I had in the world. Even my friends weren't my friends anymore, you know. My family wouldn't write to me anymore. Now it's very funny, but it was very tragic. I didn't have a soul in the world to give a damn for me except this girlfriend of mine. And she stuck around long enough and chased me for five years, and I slowed down, and we've been married for 20 now. <laughs> but she was the only pal I had, and she's the most wonderful. We've never had a serious argument in 20 years, and that's pretty good for a drunk. She must be very tolerant, you know. <laughs> well, anyway... This guy said, I'll come over and pick you up Friday night. You'll have the jitters pretty bad. And I says, don't bother. I haven't decided to join your club. I don't know whether I'm going to like it or not. And don't forget, I'm one of the biggest musicians in town. If I lend my name to that thing, you know, it might, it might be very bad for me. I must investigate this thing called Alcoholics Anonymous. What's the address? And he gave me the address, and uh, Friday night came, and I'd been cooled down just a little bit. I wasn't shaking quite so bad, so... Uh, Cecilia and I said, well, let's go down and see, look this thing over. She's a non-alcoholic. Her knees got weak when she drank, so she couldn't drink much. So, uh, <laughs> you know, she got a buzz after two drinks. The guy says, oh, I can't drink anymore. I got a buzz. I says, well, what the hell did you drink it for? You know, to get a buzz. Get a bigger buzz, drink a little more. The way we did. <laughs> So we went down and I went to this meeting. It was my first meeting and there were 34 or 35 people in the room. And there were two girls there, two women, I remember definitely. And the guy that stood up there and started talking and he started quoting the Bible and, and like it was a sin, you know, to drink. And it was a great, well, you were a moral leper and all this and that. And it just happened to be one of those wacky doodles that night talking at this meeting. And it was a speaker meeting. And I turned to the guy sitting next to me and I said, I can't see whether this is going to help me in any way, shape or form. I'm going home. This is halfway through the meeting. He says, don't go home, stick around for the rest of the meeting, and give yourself a break for the first time in your life, and come back to at least eight meetings, and then make up your mind of whether you think this is for you or not. Can you stay sober eight weeks? And I says, oh, I stayed sober three months one time. He says, well, just come back, and don't go home now. Well, this was a challenge, and I says, I'll just prove to you that this is a phony baloney. So I stayed for the rest of the meeting, and I kept coming back, and lo and behold, in about six, seven days, I'm making 12-step calls. <laughs> The guy says, how long have you been sober? I said, a week. He said, what do you mean? What are you talking? I was sober three months one time. So this, I stayed sober and I stayed sober. Eight weeks come along and ten weeks come along and I'm still sober and uh, running around like crazy. And like an old AA told me, just about two weeks before he passed away, one of my real close buddies in AA, he said, what would you give for your first year in AA? I said, I don't know. I'd give an awful lot. He said, I'd give my right arm for my first year in AA. What a wonderful, wonderful year in my life that was. And I can say right now that that was the most wonderful for me, too. That first year in AA. Staying sober and hanging on to one another like drowning men. And there were so few of us, and we were bringing them in by flocks. And my anonymity didn't mean much to me then. It doesn't mean a hell of a lot to me now, because what? Well, among AAs, I mean, except for the level of press radio and film. So anyway, <clears throat> I stayed sober, and a lot of people would ask me a lot of questions, and I didn't have the answers, and I got the book out, and I studied the book, and I learned a lot of uh, answers for <laughs> all these people that were asking us. We got kicked out of the nicest homes. We were a book-selling racket. We were everything that you could think of uh, when we got well, We got a few. We got a few. But I didn't get any work. Now my ex-wife was supposed to be getting alimony. The sheriff was sending a guy down there. Why hasn't he paid his alimony? Quack, 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 quack. We're going to put you on Biscalusa's road-building project. Uh... Uh, they, uh, I made amends to everybody that I owed money to, but the, the collection agencies don't care much about amends or alcohol or nothing, and they'd garnish you the checks when I did work. And the first year I was sober, I made $1,400. I just don't know how I lived, how I got by. And after about six months of this, I went to the leader of the group. His name was Frank Randall, and God bless him, he held us together. He was a real rough, tough guy. He used to just spit in our face. I never saw him. He used to make me so mad, I'd just get up and yell at him. And he says, you're mad? And I says, yeah. He says, great, you're thinking <laughs> You'll stay sober, you're thinking. So anyway, I said, do you know anybody in the music business? And he said, no, why? And I said, I need a job real bad, and I thought you might have an angle. He says, my boy, this is not an employment agency. This is a place to stay sober. He says, what's your number one problem? I said, alcohol is my number one problem. He said, okay, take care of your number one problem, and everything else will take care of itself when it's supposed to. 
He says, you might not get a job for five years the way you've kicked these people around. It's so simple. That's all I have to worry about is booze. And everything else will take care of itself. It's very true. I didn't get any work that year. And there was a reason behind it. You see, God takes care of everything. If we do our part of the job, God will take care of the rest of it. Now, he doesn't say, God isn't going to take care of it when we snap our fingers. And all us drunks are exactly the same, the same way. We want it to happen right now. And that was the way with me. I want it to happen right now. I've been sober six months, and I can't get going. What's the matter? I'm playing better than I ever did in my life. I'm more capable. Quack, 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 quack. He says, there's a reason behind it somewhere. Well, he says, just be patient. You'll get what you'll deserve when you're supposed to get it. God will take care of it. And you know, now that I look back after about a year or two, why didn't I get that work? Well, I'll tell you, this is as factual to me as I'm standing here tonight, how God works in such wondrous ways. For many years, when I went to the studio, I always carried a jug. I always had a fifth of booze. I was always the first trombone player, egotistical, vain, alcoholic. I had to be the first soloist or uh, there was no go. And I didn't make any more money than the guy playing the fourth horn and he could stay drunk all the time. Yeah. How stupid can you bet? You see, but I'm an alcoholic. I'm a vain, egotistical alcoholic, and I'm the best or else. So if things would get tough, I'd get a little bit nervous. I'd jump behind a stand, I'd have myself a couple snorts. Well, this was enough to get me started on another drink. As soon as the picture was over, invariably, I was on a drunk. Now, God took care of me. He didn't even allow me to get to work, so I didn't have to have the job. So I didn't have any trouble. I had no reason, nothing behind it at all. I didn't make any money, but I ate, and I had a roof over my head. God says no as often as he says yes. And when we look back at the things that we wanted so badly maybe a year ago, and then we realize we didn't get what we wanted, and we look back and we realize we didn't get it, and it was the luckiest thing in the world that we didn't. God said no. He took care of everything for us. It would have been a catastrophe if we'd have gotten what we wanted. And this is the way he works. But we have to do our part of the job. Action, action is the magic word in Alcoholics Anonymous. You see, our program is the basis of everything for us. In fact, the philosophy is the greatest in the world. We've got a little bit of everything. We've got a little bit of everything. It's simple, but it's powerful. We've got a little religion in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, religion in itself doesn't keep many people sober. In fact, some of them that get sober on religion alone might as well stay drunk because they get dingling as hell. You know, you've seen that. You've seen that. We've got a little psychiatry in AA, you know, uh, the self-psychiatry, the fourth step, which I think is of so utmost importance to us, where we take our own. We, we, we sit down and analyze ourselves. If we do it honestly, it works very, very good. We've got that thing called... Uh, a group therapy where we all get together. We all have the same enemy, exactly, the same enemy. And they tell us in the program that we work this program according to the way we wish to work it, but we must be honest. Philosophy. Everything that you can name we have in this program, no one of which would get us sober, but we have them all here. And we have the most important thing of all is one drunk talking to another. One drunk talking to another. And now I know why that psychiatrist couldn't help me. If he'd have been a recovered alcoholic, boy, we'd have been pals. But he wasn't. And he didn't suffer like me. And he didn't sit down, get down on his knees by that bed and pray and puke and sweat like I did. He hadn't been through hell like I have, and there's no hell like it, getting over a bad drunk after two or three weeks without food, etc. You see, he hadn't been through none of this, so he couldn't help me. But just one of us drunks talking to another, how powerful this thing is. And the program is everything. The program is a spiritual program because it's for good. The whole movement of Alcoholics Anonymous is a spiritual movement because everything in AA is positive. Everything is good, and good and God are synonymous. Now, we don't say that you must believe in God, but we say it helps an awful lot to believe in a power greater than yourself. But even if you are agnostic, it also says keep an open mind and you will come to believe. You will realize that you as a person could not have done this job and perform this miracle that is being performed on you without the help of some power greater than ourselves, which we in AA call God. And this is the whole thing behind the whole thing, is God as we understand him. To me, God is all and all is God. If I live up to the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm going to get the help of God. And after we get sober, all these other things happen to us. 
we find out that we have a little serenity. Not 100%, but we have a little peace of mind. We're happy with other people. We aren't hearing those voices and somebody else talking about us all the time like we did when we were drinking. Have you been through that? I have been through it. Used to throw me on a big wizard every once in a while. People were talking about me. Maybe I was a little more dingling than somebody else. But I think we're all just a little ding in that, in that extreme. But we're very, very sensitive. We're very imaginative people. We're a group by ourselves. Good. We're emotionally, we're on the highs and we're on the lows. We aren't like the vegetables, the ordinary, you know, they just like this all the time. But we, <laughs> we have suffered and so we can enjoy it. And that's the kind of dingalings we are. Wonderful. Just wonderful. And then I want to say just a few words before I close about something that helped me a great deal in Alcoholics Anonymous, and that is the fourth step. The first three steps are decisions, and we hit the fourth step, and this is what we call our first working step. Taking an inventory of ourselves. This must be a very important step, because five and a half pages of chapter five are devoted to our fourth step alone. Now, this is self-analysis is exactly what it is. And you know what I did? I read this thing over and read this thing over, and the months are going by, and the months are going by, and I haven't had a written inventory, and it says, write the inventory. It doesn't say take it mentally, write it. Because when you write it down and look at yourself, you're really looking at yourself that you really are for the first time in your life. The greatest thing in the world for we alcoholics. So here's the way I analyze it. I always got in these big emotional tizzies because of some defect of character. Of course, previous to AA, I never had any defects of character. I was a great guy, only I drank too much. So over here in my debits, I put down something that I knew bothered me a great deal, and this was self-pity or frustration. This is the worst defect of character that I had then, and it's the worst defect of character that I have now. And I wrote it down. And the second worst thing that caused me to start on all these drunks, and these are what always got me on these big emotional things, was resentment. And then the third was intolerance. And the fourth was selfishness. And the fifth was anger. And all through this goes ego. On the other side of the ledger, I was 38 years old. I'm now 61, by the way. You don't have to count them. <laughs> Get to be an old goat. But uh, I was 38 years old. I had no friends in the world but one friend, and that was my girlfriend. And here was my inventory. But you know, this is the greatest accomplishment that I had ever done for myself in my whole life of 38 years. The self analyze. The next step says, admit it to God and to another human being. Oh, can of corn. Why, this is corny. Why should, why, you know, it's terrible. But I want to stay sober. It's the most important thing in the world to me. And to be honest, I have to sit down with somebody else. So I was with my old friend. I yanked this thing out of my pocket. I want to sit down and talk over my inventory. He yanked one out of his pocket. He says, I took mine too. And we sat down and compared these things. And for two hours, there were two alcoholics there that had the most sensible talk with each other that I ever had with another human being in my life. It was real rough. And it was very difficult for me to take these two steps. And I know now why. Because I had no humility whatever. Not a great deal now, but none at all then. All ego. And then I realized that all the great people in the world who are really great people were also the most humble. And you can't be a big man or a great man unless you are also a very humble man. And here's another thing that AA taught me. Jesus Christ, the image of humility. George Washington, humility. Abraham Lincoln, humility. Einstein, humility. You name it, and I mean, he or she is great, it's humility. And you cannot be big unless you're also very, very humble. And then we jump down to that one on making amends. Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. What a job. And I wrote down the things that bothered me the most. And the things that didn't bother me, I didn't make amends for. For instance, there was one certain bar where I used to drink, and when I'd fall off the stool over twice, he'd cut off my drinks. And this particular night, I just fell off once, and he cut off my drinks, and I got mad and hit him on the head with a beer bottle. <laughs> now, I never made amends to that guy, because he has to expect those sort of things. That's all in this, that's all in this day's work. And I never felt sorry for it. So in other words, I found out one thing for me. The Father says a change of personality, a change of attitudes. If I am going to have a change of personality and a change of attitudes, I must do things that I just like to do. If I go right down the same rut and I'm still the same stinking person that I was before, I certainly am not going to have a change of attitudes and a change of personality and a change in my thinking and a change in the sense of values. So I found out on the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and this may sound very brutal to a lot of you who are new. 
But don't let it worry you because you've got a lifetime job ahead of you. I found out one thing, that I, the things that I dislike to do the most on this program are the ones that do me the most good. Taking the daily inventory, the 11th step, and then we get down to the 12th step, having had a spiritual awakening. And me, like all the rest of the drunk spot, that God was going to rat me on the head with a magic wand and everything was going to be fine overnight. And this is so foolish. Do you know, in Appendix 2 of the big book, Bill explains this so beautifully. He says, the spiritual awakening happens to us unbeknowings to us, to ourselves. But our family and our close friends notice this long before we do, our change of attitudes. And you know something? He says, our change of attitudes and our change of personality, for the better, is the real, true spiritual awakening. In very exceptional case, they have an overnight spiritual awakening. And this took care of a lot of arguments that I heard in AA when I first came in. So you see... It's nothing else but good practicability, good common sense, and right down to earth. The very practicability of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is spirituality identified. And now, in closing, I want to read something for you, which I very seldom do, because I leave this up to the women alcoholics. They love to read poems, you know. Before I read this, I want to tell you another story about the little piano player. Because you seem to enjoy him so much, and I do too. The same little piano player, you know. He was a wonderful piano player, and he used to get on these real bad wizards, and oh, he'd get drunk and he'd just raise the devil, and uh, he was quite a pest. But everybody loved him because he was such a great artist. So we're all we just got finished a big picture over at RKO, and we're all sitting up at the bar, all the musicians, and there was one vacant stool, and here comes our little piano player in the door. He had been on a big wizard. His whiskers are down to here. His coat is torn. He'd been puking on himself. He's just an awful mess. And he got crawled up onto this stool, and he kept hitting on the bar, and he says, John, give me a drink. You know I'm the best damn piano player in the world. I can play anything. Give me a drink, John. I can play anything. Give me a drink. And finally, one of the intolerant musicians says, there's a piano back there. Go over there and play it for us, will you? Go, let's see what you can do. So he says, I'll just show you. So he got off of the stool and started for the piano, and lo and behold, the seat of his pants were out, and his fanny was hanging out. And the bartender noticed this just as he started over there, and he got over there just as the piano player sat down. And he says, do you know your fanny's hanging out? And the piano player says, no, but just sing a few bars and I'll follow up. <laughs> Many years ago, a great writer of ours by the name of Fulton Osler wrote a little article for the grapevine, and this is many, many years ago. And I've always, cher always cherished this article because it is so beautiful. And he talks about members of Alcoholics Anonymous, and his one member of his family was an alcoholic. Now, Fulton Osler is dead now. And I want to read this to you because it is so wonderful. He was a non-alcoholic member of AA, if you want to call him that. He wrote for us a great deal. He says, down at the very bottom of the social scale of AA society are the pariahs, the untouchables, and the outcasts, all underprivileged and all known by one excoriating epitaph, relatives. I am a relative. I know my place. I am not complaining, but I hope no one will mind if I venture the plaintive confession that there are times, oh, many, many times, when I wish I had been an alcoholic. By that I mean that I wish I were an AA. The reason for that is that I consider the AA people the most charming in the world. Such is my considered opinion. As a journalist, it has been my fortune to meet many of the people who are considered charming. I number among my friends stars and lesser lights of stage and cinema. Writers are my daily diet. I know the ladies and gentlemen of both political parties. I have been entertained in the White House. I have broken bread with kings and ministers and ambassadors. And I say after that catalog, which would, could be extended, that I would prefer an evening with my AA friends to any persons or group of persons I have indicated. I ask myself why I consider so charming these alcoholic caterpillars who have found their butterfly wings in Alcoholics Anonymous. There are more reasons than one, but I can name just a few. The AA people are what they are, and they were what they were because they are sensitive, imaginative, possessed of a sense of humor and awareness of universal truth. They are sensitive, which means that they are hurt easily, and that helps to make them alcoholics. But when they have found their restoration, they are still as sensitive as ever. 
responsive to beauty and to truth, and eager about the intangible glories of this life. That makes them charming companions. They are imaginative, and that helps to make them alcoholic. Some of them drank to flog their ambition on to greater efforts. Others guzzled only to black out unendurable demons that rose in their imagination. But when they found the restoration, their imagination is responsive to new incantations, and their talk abounds with color and life, and that makes them charming companions, too. They are possessed with a sense of humor. Even in their cups they have been known to say damnably funny things. Often it is being forced to take seriously the little and mean things of life that made them seek escape in a bottle. But when they have found the restoration, their sense of humor finds a blessed freedom, and they are able to, read, to reach a godlike state where they, are, they can laugh at themselves, the very height of self-conquest. Go to their meetings and listen to their laughter. At what are they laughing? At ghoulish memories over which weaker souls would cringe in useless remorse, and that makes them wonderful people to be with by candlelight. And they are possessed of a sense of universal truth. That is often a new thing in their hearts, the fact that this at one moment with God's universe had never been awakened in them is sometimes the reason why they drank. The fact that it was at last awakened is almost always the reason why they are restored to the good and the simple ways of life. Stand with them when the meeting is over and listen while they say the Our Father. They have found a power greater than themselves which they diligently serve, and that gives them a charm that never was elsewhere on land or sea. It makes you know that God himself is really charming, because the AA people reflect his mercy and his forgiveness. And thank you very much, and God bless you.